everybody. Welcome back to When Crisis Calls. I'm Sarah, the prevention educator at Safe House. We have Hannah with us today. She's an advocate at our domestic violence shelter, and she's going to talk with us a little more about shelters and how they work. Hannah, tell us a little about yourself and what advocacy means to you. So, I don't know. That's a big question. Tell a little bit about myself. Um, I guess I could start by saying that I grew up in a family of helping professions with my dad in like a pastoral role and my mom as a social worker. Helping is just something that was like always ingrained in me and my siblings. And then when I moved away to college, I went to Troy University and was a part of the criminal justice program there. And I had a minor in human services. And I learned a lot in those classes about victims advocacy. Um, Some of the clubs I was part of, we would do fundraisers that all focused around like supporting victims advocacy groups. And in doing a lot of that, I learned a lot about um, services that are lacking for people, a lot about what's out there and a lot about the needs uh, of people who need services after being victimized in some way, shape or form. To me, advocacy can look like a lot of things because I feel like advocacy looks a little different when it's like an employment role, but it can also just be like a characteristic of people in general. Um, In a general sense, to me, advocacy means just being a support person for people who have whatever needs it may be and also being willing to help be a voice for that person when they need it. A lot of people who are in need of advocacy services struggle to have that voice themselves, Um, especially in the line of work we do with domestic violence. They've been told many times that their voice isn't worth anything. Um, For my job specifically, advocacy looks like um, helping meet the needs of our residents at the shelter, um, providing transportation, helping speak up, like when they share things about their needs, helping to be a liaison for them and their case manager or the counselor and informing them of some of the needs that the resident has. What trainings did you have um, while becoming an advocate like when you got into this role or did you have any trainings? Um, trainings are abundant I have learned um, and I think they're necessary though because they help teach us how to best serve our clients and A big thing that we provide, at least at our agency, and I feel like most similar agencies do this, is I've received a lot of training on trauma-centered approaches and trauma-informed care, as it's called, sometimes referred to as TIC. And a lot of those kinds of trainings talk about how to take into consideration that this person has experienced traumatic situations which makes it a lot different, like harder for them to receive services, but it also helps you understand better where they're coming from. And the fact that when you've experienced trauma, the brain doesn't react always in the most, what we would consider logical ways. Um, There's a lot more to it and they have a lot of complex issues and struggles that when you have that trauma informed approach, it helps you better be patient and understanding. But I also received a lot of like basic training on understanding what is domestic violence and what is sexual assault and what all can be included in those things. Um, received a lot of training about how to be an active listener um, and be empathetic um, and never like leave your biases and prejudices behind you when you approach this line of work. 
the list can go on and on because there are so many trainings, but honestly, even as many trainings as there are, there's always room for more trainings because <laughs> you can never be too educated when it comes to serving other people. Right. We are definitely always learning um, in this job and just in our personal lives. Um, going back to the trauma-informed care, um, do you, can you, not to put you on the spot, but can you think of an example um, of how we use trauma-informed care and what that would look like? Um, there's a lot of things that it looks like. I think one big thing that I have to take into consideration like just as an example is a lot of people who've experienced trauma what's on their brain is at the forefront of their brain and for a lot of the clients like that I work with what's on their brain seems like something that has to be approached right then even if it's something very simple like hey I need to go to the store to buy myself some snacks if that's what's at the forefront of their brain that seems like the most important thing and for those of us who haven't experienced the same kinds of trauma our brain can tell us, no, that's something that can wait. That's not an emergency. But when you have some of these trauma thing, like situations, that's what you're thinking of. Like what's important then is what's the most important thing. And it's important to take into consideration that these people have experienced trauma and it helps be patient with them to realize that their thought processes are going to be a little different than ours. Okay. Um, so you said a little bit about like transportation and um, helping case managers and all that, but what's your typical day like at working at a domestic violence shelter or is there a typical day? There is no such thing as a typical day. <laughs> Every day is a little different, which is part of what I love about this job is like mm -hmm. you have certain things like routine tasks, but every day looks a little different. Mm -hmm. um, but a typical day, typically for me at least, Includes I come in first thing I do is just make sure I'm updated on anything that might have happened since I left the day before or the week before Making sure I'm up to date on what's going on with the clients as I mentioned earlier a lot of what my job Includes is helping them with whatever needs they have around the shelter And so sometimes that means going to the kitchen and making sure they have plenty of food laid out for the day or they have all the milk or juice or whatever they need. I try to start out my day going ahead and tackling those simple tasks because as we, as those who have worked in a trauma field know, anything can happen at any time and that's just the world of working in crisis intervention mm -hmm. is you never know what could happen. Um, so I start with those kind of basic tasks and then typically throughout the day, I do answer crisis calls. That's a big part of my job. You never know when the you never know when crisis might call, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, then that is a serious thing. Like, you never know when that phone's gonna ring, and you might have a huge crisis situation going on with somebody. Um, we also do a lot of transportation. That is a big part of my job because a lot of the residents that we get do not have their own vehicles, and a lot of times that is because their abuser takes the vehicle away from them or will steal the car keys or take the, like withhold it like their documents such as driver's license and stuff like that and so they're not able to provide their own transportation and they also often have limited funds to provide their own transportation because abusers that's one way a lot of these abusers control people is through financial means of not allowing people yeah so when you say transportation, what are like the most typical places that you take them? 
Um, typically, that means a lot of doctor's appointments. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we do have to take them to court appointments or court hearings. A lot of it is medical, though, because a lot of the a lot of the residents we get because of the abuse that they have endured have a lot of medical needs, whether that be physical or even like mental health needs. So we do have a lot of doctor's appointments for their to help meet their complex needs. Okay. Um, also, going back to the crisis calls, um, I remember working at shelter. Um, my first crisis call, I was completely panicked because I had no idea what was going to be on the other line. Um, I'm pretty sure I, for the first like week, I don't, I think I completely avoided answering the phone. And then I'm pretty sure when I finally decided I was going to do it, I remember all the rest of the women standing outside, like cheering me on because I was so nervous. Um, but I quickly learned that, you know, not all calls are crisis calls, but there are some, uh, or we get a lot of them, obviously. Um, but not every time the phone rings does that happen. But tell us um, a little bit more about a crisis call, an actual crisis call, and maybe a little about the form that we fill mm-hmm. out or, or, you know, whatever that you can and want mm-hmm. to tell us. What would you tell us about that? It does sound like we have had similar experiences. <laughs> I was terrified to answer the phone when I first started. Pretty sure the only way they ever got me to answer the phone is the other daytime advocate who works on the shift with me stood there and said, I refuse to answer this phone until you do. <laughs> uh, and she did that to encourage me, not to put me yeah. on the spot, but because sometimes the only way we're going to get used to things is to do it. Be thrown and into it. That's the thing about crisis as well. And that kind of ties into your question is no crisis ever looks the same. No crisis call ever looks the same, which for, could seem overwhelming in many ways of, oh my gosh, how do you respond if everything is different? But in some ways that makes it easier because it means it's not like a set thing um, you have to know because everything does look a little different and every person that has a crisis call will be in need of a little different services. Typically the first thing we do when we answer is we do have to get some basic information. And a lot of that is because we want to make sure for someone who is in crisis that they're getting the best services for them. And so you don't want to go through like a long dramatic thing to feel like, to realize, oh, we don't have the services for you. So we start with some basic like demographic questions to make sure that we are the agency that can best provide their needs. And if not, typically before they go too in depth, we want to make sure they have the numbers or the contact information for the agencies that can best help them. But we typically do ask that basic demographic question. And then we'll just ask for like a little bit of basic information about what's going on. And we let the, we always let the caller say as much or as little as they feel comfortable sharing. A big thing about answering crisis calls is getting the information you need without re-traumatizing the caller. You don't ever want to force someone to share information that they don't feel comfortable giving right that moment because you don't want to risk re-victimizing the person. who ha- Because if they're on the other end of that crisis call and they're in genuine crisis, you want to help make things easier for the person and help help them get what they need instead of making them feel re-victimized. Mm-hmm. As that everything looks a little different, but typically after they tell you what, however much or little they want to about the situation that led to them calling, typically then we try to figure out what services they're in need of. If they need shelter, then we pro- um, we'll try to provide like provide them the services they need for that, or we'll ask if they need counseling or legal advocacy. We try to let them know what services we provide 
and then ask them if they're interested in any of that and help get that set up for them, whether that means contacting that staff person on their behalf or giving them that contact information for them to do that when they're ready. That's another thing about being involved with trauma-informed care is you don't want to force people to do things they're not ready for. And so sometimes when they make that call, they're ready to come into shelter right then or they're ready to start counseling or start the process of getting a protection order. But sometimes they're not ready for that and you want to make sure they always feel like they are in control of what's happening with them. And so we give them the information they need about receiving those services. In the first episode, I talked a little more um, or talked a little about crisis centers and how there's one for every county. Um, But can you tell us more about service areas, maybe what our service area is and what the process would be if someone were to call outside of our service area and needed resources? um, What's the process if we can't help them? What do y'all do on that end of the call? That is actually a really great question and something that I think is important for people to know that typically here in the state of Alabama, well, always in the state of Alabama, we do have shelters that cover different service areas. And the point of that is not to like exclude people, but to make sure they're being provided the services that are closest to them. Because I do know, as we talked about earlier, transportation is an issue. And especially in Alabama, when so many areas are rural, you want to help them receive services close to them that are most easily accessible. Our service area specifically is for our domestic violence services. We service Shelby, Coosa, and Clay counties. And then for our sexual assault services, which is done through Safe Shelby, they also include Chilton County. But anybody can call us from wherever Um, And if they aren't in our service area, we do provide them those numbers and we want to make sure they know, okay, we may not be the ones to best help you, but let me give you the name and number of the agency that can best serve you. And sometimes that looks like having to call the other agency on behalf of the caller and say, hey, we have this caller who is in your service area and we feel like you can best meet their needs and kind of advocate for them. I always thought that it was really cool that, um, the ACADV, which is the Alabama Coalition Against Domestic Violence, they send out um, this little cheat sheet. It is a color-coded map that separates all the service areas. So it's really easy if someone were to call outside of a service area, it's really easy to take a look at that map really quick and find their service area and get them the resources that they need. That map is such a lifesaver and such a great asset that I'm so thankful for because it helps to quickly be able to look and see who can best provide those services because and not have to put the caller on hold although that is an option it's already such a huge step for them to make that call and sometimes it can increase the anxiety by having to put them on hold too many times so also in the first episode i mentioned how a shelter could sound like a scary place but also i stress the importance of safety during the time of leaving an abusive relationship Um, Do you have any words of encouragement for someone during that time that may need to flee to a shelter? I would say that on the other end of that call, when you do make that crisis call, there are people there who is our whole purpose to listen out to what you're saying, to be empathetic and to hear you out and to not judge. Because it is a difficult thing and we are not here to judge your situation. And we also don't ever feel like it's your fault. Yes, the situation is horrible and you may feel like you could have done something different, but no one asked to be abused. It is never your fault. And we also understand that leaving is a hard thing to do or even just to call and receive services. 
Um, and not to just make everything so statistic-oriented, statistic but we do understand that it does often take multiple times to leave, and you will never be judged for the difficulty of leaving, and you will never hear on the other end of the phone with us judgmental statements such as, well, why don't you just leave, or why has it taken you this long? You do have people there who are understanding, and it is our whole job and our whole purpose to provide you safety and be there for you during one of the most difficult times of your life. So you don't have to be scared to make that call, even though it is hard, and we do understand that. Know that you have people who want to be there and support you during what might be one of the most difficult times of your life. And my last question um, is one of the biggest things that we have going on in our world um, to everyone right now is this pandemic. Um, that started in, last March. We're coming up on a year. Um, how has shelter life changed during this pandemic? Did you know? I always get lots of questions about if we closed it all. Um, are we still open? Are, are services still available? All of that. How how did shelter handle this pandemic? For the most part, in many ways, things have been the same. We did have a little bit of like staff scheduling differences for a while, um, and we are doing our best to combat that because we want to make sure that we don't ever quit providing services to people. Our shelter has stayed open throughout all of this, which is such a big blessing for the people in our service area that they can still receive the services. And we still provide all the same services that we always have. Um, the only big changes we've had, which really aren't difficult changes, is we do provide, like, have to enforce a mask, like the mask order at our shelter. And we do that for the safety and health of everyone here because we don't want someone to come into shelter and have to worry about a health risk. And that's a big part of why we do enforce some of these things. Uh, and we know it's hard to have to wear a mask when you're in shelter because this is your home, at least for the time being, and you want to feel like it's a comfortable place. But that is one of the big ways we do try to make sure that all of our staff and our residents and clients stay well. We also have instituted regular sanitizing um, about every other hour, we will go through and make sure we are spraying down and wiping down the shelter. Wanted to make, again, just to make sure we're keeping people as healthy as possible and as safe as possible. The only big difference, if you could even call it that, is we have had to start limiting some of our transportation to a strictly medical emergency or like court appointments. Um, only the things that are really needed. We might, We can't just stop everything and take people to the store like maybe we used to and we wish we could but just because of like covid uh, reasonings we have had to limit some of that a little bit but we do still make sure everyone can make their medical appointments and receive any emergency or court appointments that they have going on okay well thank you hannah so much for talking with me today um do you have anything else that that you want to talk about that maybe i missed um, I would just also say that you don't have to be employed as an advocate to have that advocacy role for people. And if you ever are in a situation where someone wants to share their story with you, just make sure you're an open listener. Um, you hear out what they say and know that there are resources like ours. So if you don't know what to say or what to do, um, you can call hotlines like ours and we can help you provide um, that information to other people. But I would also add that if you're in a situation, whether uh, an employment position or just a volunteer or just a personal situation, um, that it can be difficult to 
hear such heavy information on the regular. Uh, and also know that it's okay to prioritize your self-care. Self-care is not a selfish thing. It is important when you are helping others to take care of yourself as well, whether that looks like taking time to read a book or pampering yourself in whatever way that may look like. One of the best ways to be a good advocate is to make sure that we are taking care of ourselves as well. Very good advice. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and we thank you for the work that you do. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you to our listeners. If you or someone you know feel like you may need domestic violence resources, you can visit our website at safehouse.org or call our crisis line at 205-669-7233. For additional resources, you can visit ncadv.org.